but um, the the goal of the class is that um, we would we would have in the church kind of a, a, a core of people who who have really thought through these things not only in a theoretical way. Uh, but with a heart toward implementing these things and caring for one another, that, that we would be um, equipped to help people biblically, uh, but really desiring to do that as well. And so maybe you could take this as an opportunity not only to learn kind of some practical on-the-ground skills for how to enter into uh, another person's life who's in need, by the way, your own life as well, you know, we finding counseling, you know, it's always <laughs> assessing yourself first and learning how to help others. Um, but not only equipped for that, but also, you know, just prayerfully looking for opportunities to do that. Um, people struggling in this church, people in your own family or neighborhoods or whatever, however you might minister God's grace in the places he's put you, you know, that's, that's the goal of this class. And so we want you to be ready to do that. And, uh, and we'll talk more about that. You know, what is that going to look like in this church? Um, kind of going from the class, you know, wh- where do you look for those opportunities? How do you enter into those opportunities? So that's the goal, not just like Sunday school learning, but, you know, with, with the view toward, toward implementation. So, uh, well, maybe I can pray for us and pray for you, Dr. Jones, as you lead us today. And, um, oh, there are notebooks, I'll hand those out. There are books as well. It's called Side by Side. He's recommended for you to read along with the class. Um, and then it's $30. Um, if you uh, could get that to me, or maybe I'll put a basket in the back or something, um, just drop it off at some point. Uh, mark your name off on the list, uh, the attendance list back there as well. All right? Let me pray for us. Father, we're grateful for your kindness and that, um, even as Dr. Jones shared with us a couple weeks ago, that in Christ you came to us, you demonstrated your love for us uh, in his compassion, seen so clearly in his life, and uh, ask that you would help us to be good mirrors, reflecting that love well in the, the places that you've put us in this congregation. Pray that we would be ready to bear the burdens with those who are weak, uh, ready with, with eyes to see those needs, uh, with hands and hearts ready to help in those situations. Pray that this class would be fruitful toward that end. So I pray that Dr. Jones would be clear in his speaking today and that you would fill his heart with love for you as he teaches, and that might be evident in, in all of our learning, that it would be directed towards loving you uh, more wholly. I pray that we all would... Um, understand the gospel more clearly and delight you uh, more because of this time together. So we ask for these things, knowing that it's your spirit that gives fruit. We can plan and produce all of these kinds of activities and learning opportunities, but it's your spirit that gives fruit from these things. And so we're dependent on you and ask for this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, thank you, Nick, for your introduction and your prayer. I do appreciate the uh, asking God to guide our time. I'm very conscious of the need for the Spirit of God to enable us today. Uh, I know the word counseling can be a very frightful word for all of us, including me. I've been doing this for a while, but I'm very conscious of that word. And one of my goals 
in these Saturday mornings for us is to kind of uh, demystify counseling, to uh, deprofessionalize counseling, to uh, deformalize counseling, and to have you think about what we're all about here as simply learning how to be a better friend, how to bring Bible truth to one another, and to bring it in a very caring and personal way that includes working hard to understand and listen to the other person. Uh, I have a vision for a, for a local church. It's a vision that I think you share. It's a vision that I know that my church is striving to attain. And that vision is that the members of the church, the men and women who are part of the church, will be able to come alongside each other, listen with care and compassion, be able to understand the struggle of a friend, a sister, a brother, or a lost person, and be able to bring an appropriate word from God with an open Bible or without an open Bible at that, in that particular setting when you're on the phone or just talking with someone in the welcome area before or after a service. And we'll get very practical in how we actually do that. I'll try to do some modeling of how to do that and actually have you practice a couple things with each other. Now, I'm not into the group, um, all the group techniques that some of you have learned as educators. Uh, I'm not good at that adult learning um, techniques, but we'll do a couple of those things along the way so that you get a, a ability to taste and experience there. My goal is we're going to take a break about midway. Uh, midway, will I guess, will be defined by me. Uh, I do have a clock here. I'll try to uh, roughly uh, make sure that we uh, at least get a break by 9.45 and uh, kind of an hour session each maybe of these. We're getting started about quarter till now. And then we will uh, finish by 11 is our plan. So you can go out and enjoy the beautiful day. <laughs> hey, just remember it could be worse. You could have typhoons like in China. Or we could have providentially been placed in Syria. And uh, I just have to remind myself when I wake up the day and complain about another dismal day. And it's not going to get any better uh, in the next couple of days apparently. And uh, plus, I'm a New York Yankee fan, and so I want to see the Yankees be able to, you know, play their games. Uh, look, I got a one thumbs up. I think the rest of you are ready to write me off. Uh, that uh, I won't say anything about being a WVU fan because um, I made a comment one other time, and Pastor Tom wasn't as excited about my comment. So uh, because they played, he's not here. Yes, but you don't know about the cameras. Uh, <laughs> uh, I do love, uh, I do love uh, uh, Tom very much, and uh, I've grown also to appreciate Nick in more recent years. All right, well, let's uh, jump in then and think about this topic for today. Now, what I have for us today is really a combination of, of two things. So we're hopefully going to divide them roughly half and half according to our time. Uh, 
so the first uh, session today, we're going to have two things. We're going to look at overviews of, of two things. I'm going to present to you a visual model that I hope will help you. It has guided me for 20-plus years on how I think about people and how I think about myself. I want to share that with you today. And then in the second uh, break, the second hour, we'll, talk, we'll begin to talk about that personal ministry model that I actually presented on, uh, two weeks ago on a Sunday here. And if you didn't get a chance to hear that, you can uh, get that online, I'm, I'm told, uh, when I, I preached from Matthew 9. That'll be our, our working ministry model. Okay, so a personal change model, how I change and how others will change. And then a ministry model. And then the ministry model is what's going to dominate the subsequent weeks. So I'm just going to introduce the personal change model today, give you a taste of that. And that will be in the background of everything we do in the coming weeks. But we'll more explicitly then walk through these steps of the personal ministry model. Okay, so first, then, the personal change model. How should you understand you? How should you understand your situation where God has placed you? And how should you understand God and what God is up to, his provisions for you in Christ? And as we think about other people, how should other people understand themselves? And how do we help them understand themselves? And then how do we help them understand their situation, their circumstances, the hardships and suffering that they face? Because most typically, as we're ministering to one another within the congregation, it's often going to be in the context of a hardship, of some kind of suffering, some kind of difficulty. And then how do we help our friend understand God? So this visual model that I'm going to present today, I think, will help us not only in self-ministry, self-counseling, but also in helping other people. So I'm going to begin with the case of the eight workaholics. Now, we know what a workaholic is. You know one when you see one. I don't have a dictionary definition, and it's not in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of the American Psychological Association. But uh, there is, nevertheless, a thing that we would popularly call a workaholic. And uh, as you think about the behavior of a workaholic, you can think about several things that would be part of that. Uh, I use this illustration for two reasons. Number one, it's not uh, an offensive sin. It's not one of those sins that is on the big sin list in most of our churches. Um, and so it's, I'm, I'm not going to be stepping on all our toes today. But also I want to say it's a pretty common problem. And uh, you, you know someone, and maybe you are that person. And I, I wrestle with this all the time. I love my work. I love what I do, and I love what I do too much sometimes, and therefore it detracts from other areas what God is calling me. I, I just counseled with a man this week who came to me with that specific problem of his schedules out of control. You know, this, this wasn't alcoholism or addictions. It wasn't major anger issues. It's just my, my schedule feels out of control. And so we talked about what behavioral changes would be needed. Uh, each of these eight people I'm going to talk about today are all Christians. And in that sense, they all know that they have this particular problem. What's wrong with their behavior? Well, they devote 
too much time to one facet of their world, their work life, and then by definition they neglect the other facets of their, work, of their life. They're neglecting other God-given duties. And this is one of those things that is somewhat an acceptable vice, isn't it? I mean, if you're a company CEO and you find out someone that you're going to hire is an alcoholic, no. You find out he's a workaholic, bring him on. This is the guy I want in my company, right? Uh, rightly or wrongly, that mind, mindset uh, somewhat prevails. Uh, if we were to ask what do these individuals need to do, well, we need to change their behavior. They would need to, um, we would say what, establish priorities and, and get some accountability and learn how to manage our time so that our time is focused on those priorities. And then we would need to learn how to depend on the Spirit of God to enable us to be the person that God would want us to be. So these are some of the behavioral strategies I think we would want to do with a person who's a workaholic. And by the way, I'm picking men here only because I was chose one gender or another. I think we've got women who have their own forms of workaholism, um, even if some of them are homemakers. But that's a whole other discussion. And I, I know as a homeschool parent for 12 years with one son and 10 years, or 10 grade levels, I should say, with another son, that... Uh, those of you in the homeschool world also can suffer from this particular problem, or you know some who do. So there's some behavioral things now, but I'm not going to focus on that this morning. I want to instead focus on their hearts. Because it's not enough for behavior to change, and, and we'll look at a couple texts of Scripture. I printed for you Bible verses here to somewhat save us a little bit of time, but also give you a a visual there and be able to connect some of the passages with each other this way. And so you have one that many of you already would know, Proverbs 4.23. Above all else, guard your hearts, for it is the wellspring of life. Above all else, more than anything, for out of the heart flow the issues of life. I have a little tune that I've memorized that helps me. Now, this is, um, this is NIV translation there you're looking at. Mm -hmm. Above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. Above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. Uh, that's a memory aid for me personally, but here's the problem we run, we run into. At any given point in time, in any given situation, our hearts are prone to stray. Our hearts are prone to focus on something other than Christ and therefore this call to guard your heart. And if we were to read the rest of the context, what you would find is that uh, in verse 24 and 25, uh, it talks about your tongue and your feet and your hands, the various body parts, all metaphors for our behavior. But where's the start of it? What's the most important thing? What's the above all? Guard your heart. Jesus gives us a couple of these points in the next two passages printed for you. Matthew chapter 12. He uses two illustrations. Uh, he uses an illustration of, of two kinds of trees. And he talks about a good tree and a bad tree. And a good tree bears good fruit. 
and a bad tree bears bad fruit. And this is a pretty basic uh, imagery. But what I find powerful is what he says at the end of verse 34. For out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. The tree thing is just an illustration. Jesus is not teaching agriculture or uh, botany, all right? Jesus is teaching about our heart. And he says that basically there's these two kinds of trees. If I were to uh, draw it this way, we would say there's a, a bad tree that has no fruit or bad fruit or putrid fruit. And then there's a good tree that has fruit, good fruit, luscious fruit. And this is true on the agricultural level. But what he says, for out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so this is the speaking that he talks about. And then this is the heart. That's what he does with these two imageries and says there's two kinds of trees, two kinds of of fruit. One of the books that I will recommend to you, but it's it's not the main one. It's sort of a second book for you beyond the side-by-side book. And it's a little longer, but it's a, a basic book that we use in all our introductory counseling training up at Southeastern and in other uh, places that I've taught, Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands. You have a bibliography, recommended resources at the very end of your notes. So I will um, mention a few of those resources along the way. But Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands by Paul Tripp will be an excellent resource if you want to go deeper now again i'm going to recommend side by side it's a briefer book and i think it's more on point with um, skills and methods practical this has got a little more theory to it but it's a very good book and i do recommend it highly and he develops that metaphor there in fact he talks about the danger in when we minister to each other of what he calls fruit stapling where we just take, try to behavioral change only, try to get our kids, our friends, our spouses, just to change their behavior. And he says, it's just like taking a dead tree and bringing a bushel of apples and a big staple gun and trying to staple these, these apples on a, on a dead tree or a, you know, a tree that's, that's, that's rotten. And so the metaphor here gives way to a very practical point. I speak what's in my heart. What's in my heart comes out in my words. He uh, expands the, the imagery here, I think, including other things, and, and when he comes to Matthew 15. And the discussion that his disciples are having uh, leads to this question, what makes a man clean or unclean? And he's dealing with the Pharisees and their um, understanding of clean and unclean. And Jesus wants to go deeper into the heart because he understands for out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. He understands above all else, guard your heart. And so what does he do here? Don't you see, this is Jesus speaking in verse 17, that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and then out of the body. But the things that come out of the mouth come from the heart. That's what he just said in 1234. And these make a man unclean. For out of the heart come 
And now notice this, this, this grocery list of uh, sinful things. Our thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, etc., etc. All these are coming from the heart. And these then are what make a man unclean. All roads, as the old saying goes, lead to Rome. Or if you've been in England, if my memory is correct, you know, all the big M's, the major arteries there, they're all going towards London there. Uh, the heart is London. Rome is, the heart is Rome. All roads are going to lead there and come out of there. And so from the same heart can come sinful sexual desires, pornography, um, conflicts with friends or spouses or, or parents or children, jealousy of other members of the church or I know having counseled a number of moms over the years and uh, being married to a great mom who is um, involved with a lot of ministry, um, jealousy among moms, uh, demandingness towards other people and the way they should treat us differently. It's from the same heart can come laziness, a craving for convenience. Uh, all these things can come from the heart. Galatians 5, there's a civil war going on inside. And if, if you notice in Galatians 5, there, there's something really to, to see here. Galatians chapter 5. Um, Paul says that, he says uh, in verse 16, live by the spirit and you'll not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the spirit. And the spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with each other so that you do not do what you want. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under law. Now he's writing to and about Christians. Don't think of saved versus lost when we use this illustration now when he uses this illustration of, of fruit. And basically, he's, he says this, that the, the sinful heart here, we would call this the flesh. The flesh produces, produces works of the flesh. And so you see in verses 19 and, and, and 20, a list. And you notice that list is not exhaustive. How does that end? How does the list end? What's your version say? Yeah, and the like, and things like this. This is not exhaustive, etc. we would say. There's a lot more that of sinful works, but where are they coming from? They're coming from the flesh. What's the contrast he draws? Well, then you go to uh, verse uh, 22 and 23, and what do you have? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. All these things are the fruit of, of the Spirit. Now, Paul is writing, too, and about Christians. And so he says that within the Christian, I like to put it this way, the Christian is a kind of hybrid 
of a godly tree and an ungodly tree. We're still in process. We're still uh, moving. We're moving from left to right here. So you have this Galatians 5 uh, picture of the flesh producing these works and the spirit producing these works. I mean, the works, I mean, we, uh, he's using the metaphor of fruit, but uh, the scriptures talk about the works of, of, of God within you. Romans 6 and James talks about good works coming from faith. So this is faith. This is the spirit. This is the good heart. This is the heart that's being transformed by Christ, producing these godly fruits or godly works. Here is the fruit of the flesh, the works of the flesh. And out of the heart come our words. Does that make sense, this parallel here? Again, within the Christian. Me. Within you. One other point to notice about Galatians 5 is that both the spirit and the flesh are active. They're equally combatants. It's not that one is uh, is attacking, the other is defending. They're both attacking. There's a war, literally, going on. It's not that one side is dominating the other side. There's a civil war going on. And Peter says something very similar in 1 Peter 2. Dear friends, I urge you, as aliens and strangers in the world, to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Again, the civil war inside. Okay, so there's a kind of biblical backdrop to what I want to say about these eight different people. We're going to get into them in just a moment now. These eight different individuals. It's all coming from the heart. As uh, Tripp would say in that instruments book, the heart is always the target of not only your own growth, but your ministry in the lives of other people. And I'm talking a lot about my vision for our churches. I think it's a vision that, that we share here. But let me also say it's a vision for our family life and our friendships. And I... I know that probably the first person that you'll be thinking about, many of you today, are going to be your spouse, your um, boyfriend, girlfriend, if you're not married, or your fiancé, and your children. I know that's going to be on your mind today. And I'm glad. That's why we're here. We want to see this developing within our families. But don't keep it within the family only. Let's look for the opportunities within the body of Christ. So let's now ask the question and move into talking about our eight different people. What are the heart desires that are driving each one of our eight workaholics? It's important you get this point. They're all identical in behavior. These are eight different people, but their behavior is identical. But their hearts vary widely. They're vastly different in their heart. So let's talk about each one of these persons. Let's talk about Mr. A, first of all. Mr. A is a guy who overworks so that he can get more money, so that he can buy bigger and better things, more things and better things. He's not content with the house that he has. He wants something bigger. He's not content with an apartment. He needs to get a house and a bigger house and all that. He's not content with an old car. He needs the newest car. He's not content with an old flip phone. He wants an iPhone, and then he doesn't want he doesn't want an iPhone. He wants an iPhone four. Well, no, that's 
dated. He wants a five. Oh, no, sorry, that's dated. Now he wants an iPhone 6 with an S. Yeah, 6S, the newest. And he'll sign up for the plan that will let him get the newest one, the 7, when that comes out. And he just wants more and more and more and more more. Okay. Yeah, the confessional booth will be set up across the hall during the breaks. Or I think of Lucy Van Pelt. What is it, five cents for us? <laughs> yeah, okay. Um, we could say this person is ruled by materialism. That's where the heart is. He finds identity and comfort and pleasure in possessions, in things, bigger and better things. Mr. B. Mr. B actually is quite content with not having those big things. He's happy with uh, an old phone. He's happy with uh, 2003 Mercury Sable uh, that needs probably to be updated at some point in his life. And I'm speaking about myself. I tend to be a little more on this Mr. B, and I'll tell you why. I not so much care about having the nicest things. I tend to worry more about the future. So I can overwork, and other Mr. B-type people, we can overwork so that we have more money, yes, possessions, yes, but not things, possessions, monetarily, so we have a nest egg. We're concerned about the future. And, you know, couples fight about this. Honey, we don't need to buy that thing. Let's, let's put it in our savings. Or, hey, let's kind of pay off on principle, or let's have something... Uh, for our retirement, or let's save for the kids' college. And No, we need a new car now. Well, no, we... you got the A-B thing going on right within your home. You'll notice in your notes that I've put into the margins on the right side there some passage of Scripture. These are passages that we could turn to if we were going to dive into any of the specific of the eight. We're not going to do that. Today, my goal is to give you this big picture here. If you were to look at Matthew 6, 19 through 24, at the end of that, Jesus talks about our treasures, where our treasures are, earthly treasures versus spiritual treasures. And then he also talks about you can't serve God in money. But what's interesting, when you come to verse 25 of Matthew 6, having said all that, he says, therefore... And then three times, do not worry, do not worry, do not worry. The worry is connected to materialism in uh, 19 through 24. And then it's also connected about fear of the future. How will God provide for me? And so that Matthew 6 really governs both Mr. A and Mr. B. Now, Mr. C. Mr. C has plenty of money. And he has, he's content with basic things, and he has a very secure future financially. But he has a brother. His brother is very successful in his career. And he has a set of parents who, from childhood, always bragged about Mr. C's brother. Why can't you be more like your brother? Why can't you uh, get better grades? You know, he gets straight A's. I, I had a cousin, cousin Mary Ellen, who's just a couple years ahead, older than me. And uh, my grandmother, I can remember my grandmother making that comparison. Uh, my cousin, very sharp, very smart. 
I can remember her saying, you know, Mary Ellen got these grades. And Grandma used to give me a dollar an A, which was pretty valuable back in my day, you know, when I was uh, in, in uh, like middle school age, that kind of thing. She'd give me a buck an A. That's pretty good back then. I guess it's up to $10 an A now if you're trying to bribe, bribe your kids. What would we say about Mr. C here? He, he's, he's perhaps uh, jealous of his brother. Or he's craving approval from his parents. Even today, even as an adult, these are all adult men. Craving parental approval. Wanting to uh, live for their admiration. Wanting to hear his parents speak about his career the way his parents speak about his brother's career. And you know what jealousy can do. Go to the fourth chapter in the Bible, right? And see what it'll do. It'll it'll produce murder. And if you looked at Cain's life, what you would see is a craving for acceptance by God, the God for His gift, an anger against God, a despair, a depression against God, leads to murder toward his brother um, Abel. Mister C, ruled by those things. Mister D. Again, same behavior as Mr. A, B, C, and D, A, 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 B, and C. Mr. D wants his neighbors to think highly of him. He he really doesn't care about possessions as much, and he doesn't even have a brother. There's not a competition with his family members, but he lives in a fairly nice neighborhood, and, and he wants his neighbors and his community to view him highly. He hears as he talks with some neighbors about, hey, so-and-so got a promotion or so-and-so's got a new position. And he hears it in the church as well. And, you know, or when the uh, small groups meet or the men's studies or the women's studies get together, oh, did you hear about my husband? And, and there's this, this subtle wanting to compete and wanting to be viewed highly by, highly by other people. Maybe we can call this a... Um, a heart of, of pride of position or of reputation. I'm living for my reputation, what other people think of me. It's a form of fear of people. Mr. E. Mr. E is a workaholic, but he really doesn't love his job so much. It's just that there's something he dislikes more than his job. He hates coming home in the evening. He comes home and the house is a mess and the kids are out of control. They're, they're disobedient. His wife is overly stressed. She's just stressed out. And uh, this, this bad marriage in his mind and this lousy family life in his mind provides no incentive for him to leave the office. When, when he's home, he convinces himself he's too busy because, after all, I've worked so hard. Um, and he can kind of excuse himself from dealing with relationships or being the one who's going to help with the, the children because he's worked too hard. But he's worked too hard because he doesn't want to come home. I was sharing this with a group of um, students, a doc- doctoral students, who are all pastors and chaplains and one of the men was a very astute chaplain, had been a chaplain in the Army for many years. He was a very high-ranking um, 
uh, officer actually in, in, in the Army. And he said, you know, I've seen this, men volunteering for short-term deployments to get away for a month or two, you know, just a short term over to Kuwait or wherever it might have been, um, monthly trips. And you can justify it by, you know, getting more money. It's for the family. But, but he, he's, he's a discerning man. He says, often escapism from, from family problems there. Mr. E. Mr. F. He also does not enjoy coming home. But there's something else at work that is becoming attractive to him. Uh, there's a female coworker. Now, there's no affair. There's no touch. There's no inappropriate contact. But he just finds that uh, a high degree of acceptance and approval. Uh, his female coworker laughs at the jokes that his wife has heard for 37 years and uh, doesn't need to hear those jokes again, but she just thinks it's wonderful there. So, again, it's not an affair, but we could say there's a kind of pre-adultery thing brewing here. There's, there's unwise, inappropriate relationships, and that, that um, affects his choices about work. Mr. G doesn't have a female co-worker that he's becoming close to. Um, he's faithful to God and to his wife, but he does overly focus on his boss. He wants to please his boss at all costs. He's over the top. It's inordinate. It's a good desire to please your boss. Colossians 3, um, Ephesians 6 calls us to be people who serve well, but trouble is he has his eye not on God sometimes, he has his eye only on his boss. He's a people pleaser towards his boss. He's living for his boss's approval. And so when the boss asks for volunteers to stay over and do an extra project, he's the first one to volunteer. He always does so, not just occasionally, but it's a pattern. If he has a commitment to his family, he will, he will say no to that routinely in order to uh, please the boss. And so here's a kind of fear of man fear of people that's directed towards his boss. And, and with that, perhaps, there's a, um, a security issue in his heart. He's overly afraid of losing his job. And so he appeases and caters and um, bows down to his boss. Let me give you one more. I think I could go further. I'm, I've just chosen to talk about eight. I think we could talk about nine or ten, and you could probably supply a few more. Mr. H. Mr. H is a very hard worker. He's a good Christian with a very solid work ethic. He's a man who believes that being a perfect worker is the right thing to do or at least um, to make sure that he's never found without finishing every project. He also is a guy who tends to look down on others who are lazy and who are incompetent or at least less competent than he is. And here's a man who is actually finding a kind of righteousness in his work performance, his work ethic. He's a good Christian. Uh, he was raised right, right? I remember reading uh, uh, part of a novel that was talking about a Southern Baptist man. And this is a secular writer, novelist, just talking about 
a Southern Baptist man who was raised right. And basically this kind of performances and very pharisaical. pharisaical. Um, by the way, welcome to the world of Southern Baptists. Okay, okay, I, I should have said that. I know for years uh, the church was independent and now uh, you all are not a typical Southern Baptist church, nor is mine, and uh, that's probably all I ought to say. I was not raised Southern Baptist. I became a Southern Baptist church member for the very first time in my life when I moved to Raleigh. I've never been in a Southern Baptist church before, and uh, I came to my first Southern Baptist church worship service in, when I moved to Raleigh, North Carolina, but... Uh, uh, I do like the denomination overall, and we won't go any further than that. Uh, but there is a kind of self-righteousness going on here, and it is producing judgmentalism. We'll, we'll look at the passage at one point during our, our time together, probably a little later, but um, Luke chapter 18, verse 9 through 14, basically to those who looked, um, those who found... Uh, sorry, I should have just written it down here. Because we will come back to it. To some who are confident, that was the word, confident of their own righteousness and look down on everyone else. One of the things we always see is self-righteousness will breed judgmentalism. Judgmentalism will flow from self-righteousness. I almost kind of put those as an arrow and a left-to-right movement here. Um, self-righteousness leads to judgmentalism. Judgmentalism stems from self-righteousness. You see that connection. And uh, Luke, the writer, makes that point about the parable that Jesus tells. We'll, we'll look at that another, another time more in depth. So just pause there, if you would, and if you've taken notes, just let your eyes scan over. Same exact behaviors, eight different. Now, entirely different? No, not in this sense. They all have to do with missing the Lord at the center. But you see, there's eight different ways that not having the Lord controlling our heart at that point in our job world will produce these different heart attitudes which in turn produced this workaholic behavior of over, overwork and underly um, doing your other duties. Let me just pause and see if you have a question. We're going to have a couple times throughout here where I'll open it up for questions and have some discussion. Do you have a question on any of these? Because I want to move into how we might look at some help and hope for these, uh, these eight guys. Please. Yeah, that's a good. That's, that's a good point. We all probably have some of all of this together. Yeah. It looks like you're set, setting a foundation of understanding where a person is driven. Right? Yes. So you can actually meet them. Yes. Okay. Yes, because uh, I guess for the sake of recording here, I should uh, kind of either repeat the question or or say it a little. Uh, just repeat the point. Yes, I'm I'm seeing a foundation, trying to drive uh, create a foundation here for the way in which we need to understand our own hearts as well as understand the hearts of other people. So I'm going to say that there's not one-size-fits-all answers to these struggles because we need to understand what's actually motivating people. Yes? Yes? 
use the phrase not having the Lord yes. to control our hearts. Is there another phrase or a couple of phrases yeah. that you could do to draw some more similarities? I, I think that would help me see because I'm, I'm kind of like Bill. I see a little bit of okay. all of that, all of these things in me. I think that would help me more than trying to pick and choose what was Gotcha, gotcha, yeah. Um, yes, a couple of you are making comments that you see aspects of you in all of these or several of these, and I think that's right. None of us are going to be pure A, B, C in my little um, scenario here. I also want to say that our goal in self-counseling as well as helping other people is not going to be to try to um, categorize them that specifically. This is These are more illustrations. Yeah, what is it that they all would have in common? What they'd all have in common would be um, a failure to, to see what God is calling me to be, to um, have God-centered priorities, and to seek to please God. So there's probably a number of ways we could talk about what the root of all this is. Self-centeredness is going to be at the bottom of it all. Pride will be at the bottom of it all. Wanting to be like God, wanting to control my world and create all the results that I want, be it things today, be it things in the future, be it parents who, who uh, like me as much as my brother. Um, so there are all various forms of playing God, various forms of seeking to live for myself and not for Christ anymore seeking to please me and not please the Lord. And I think that'll get clear as we walk through as well. Yes. Um, the Proverbs 79, the heart is deceitful above all things, desperately sick and who can understand it. Uh, to me, that kind of is the, is the thing that's the same with all of them. Yes, yeah. Yeah, Jer- Jeremiah probably. Yeah, Jeremiah seventeen nine talks about the heart being deceitful and sick. And you know what's interesting? While that passage perhaps primarily would address the unbeliever, um, you see the same deceitfulness continuing on into the new covenant for the Christian. Ephesians 4 says that we have this remaining deceitfulness that's infecting our hearts as well. And we'll see that a lot in this particular class because one of the things that we need to see is that we are self-deceived, therefore we need the people of God. And your friends are self-deceived and they need you. It's sort of inherent within us with our fallen humanity of being self-deceived. Let me take you over to Joel. And uh, the the question now we, we turn to is this. What is their hope? Is there hope for change? And I want to say there is. And I want to say there is because of passages like Joel. Now, if you turn to Joel itself, because I didn't start you with verse 11, I started you with verse 12. Here's the background. The book of Joel is a book of God bringing discipline, chastening to his people, uh, a judgment upon his people in order to turn them back to him, and he uses a locust invasion. 
Some might argue that's a metaphor for an invading army. Okay, I'm not going to argue um, that point. I do think it's probably literal locusts. We see that certainly in the plagues, and God is more than powerful to do that. What's interesting is verse 11, which is not in your notes. So if you have an open Bible, Joel 2:11, who's bringing this judgment, this chastening upon his people? The Lord, verse 11, uh, my, my translation, the Lord thunders at the head of his army. His army, his army of locusts. His forces are beyond number. Mighty are those who obey his command. The day of the Lord is great. Just, just another way to think about judgment here. It is dreadful. Who can endure it? Who can endure it? And again, one of the things that prophets do is they bring this chastening or judgment from God. However, what you find in virtually all the prophets, maybe one exception, there's a ray of grace somewhere. Good illustration for us. You know, will the sun break through at any point in the next uh, 48 hours? I don't know. But, you know, when it does, we're going to like, oh, that's nice. There is a sun. The sun hasn't died. Uh, it's still up there somewhere. Uh, is there a ray of grace for the people of God in Joel? Yes, there is. It's verse 12. Even now, it's not too late, declares the Lord. It's not too late is what he's saying. Return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God. Return to the Lord. Repent. Come back. And what does that repentance here look like? It's very holistic. In the ancient world, people would demonstrate repentance or mourning or grief by tearing their garments as a visible sign of their grief or their repentance. In this case, their repentance. Here's what Joel says. Your outward repentance is not enough. Ripping your clothes is not enough. Something else must be ripped. You've got to rip your heart. You've got to tear your heart. It's a very graphic picture, isn't it? Rip your heart in repentance. Years ago now, but it's quite memorable, I was at a restaurant. My wife and I, my wife Lauren and I, were at a restaurant with a, a pastor friend of mine uh, in West Virginia. Very dear friend, very solid godly pastor. He had had counseling training apart from me, and then he also did some training with me, but he was a few years older than me and really kind of a, an older brother in, in, in ministry, someone I highly respected. And we're at a restaurant together. And at some point, my wife, whom I love, it's 32 years now, we're still good, but she made a comment about me overworking to our dear friends. And, you know, you can get away with that with your friends. And, you know, before I could kick her or do the elbow thing or, or give her the stare, she had said a few things about frustration about my, my overworking. And this is how I remember it. <laughs> there was this activity in discussion, and the next minute I wake up in his office. It wasn't quite that way, but it felt that way. Basically said, he asked me these probing questions right at the table, and I get a little squirmy and uncomfortable, and he says, uh, 
Bob, we really need to meet. I said, okay, yeah, I'm willing to do that. So, you know, I'm the counselor. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> Counselors need counseling. They really do. And I needed that. And so I met with my pastor friend. And again, very solid guy. Very solid. And he gave me an assignment to do that was very good. It had to do with studying the scripture and some things about time priorities. And he wanted me to uh, write out a schedule for the week of what God would want and then some ways that he's gonna, that I'm going to be able to do this. And it's a really good assignment. And I went home and I did the assignment. And I came to the next session with him. And I laid out the work. I had memorized the verse of scripture. I had performed very nicely. And uh, he looked at me. He looked me in the eye and says, Bob, I don't sense your heart is really in this. And he was 100% correct. He nailed me. I, I was blind to that. There was not a heart ripping. And, and that was a rebuke to me, and I had to go back and really think about that. And uh, God used that rebuke to turn my heart to be more conscious of that. Now, am I fixed? Am I cured? Do I struggle? Yeah, I still wrestle with those things. But there, there was a, it was a turning point. It wasn't a major turning point, but it was an important turning point for me. Rip your heart. And I think that's going to be one reason why we have sins that continue to dog us. There's something else you need to see, however. There's really two points I'm drawing here. One is return. The second thing is to do so in light of grace. Now, notice the rest of verse 13. I stopped in the middle of 13. 13 says this, return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. Question, which comes first? God being gracious or their repentance and their return to God? Which comes first? Grace. Grace. Okay. You're giving the good youth room, Sunday school room answer. Here, yes, and you're right. Why? But you have to look at the, the verse. Tell me from the verse why. Yes. Don't give me your good theology. You've been trained well at this church, I believe. He is. Okay, that's one of the key words. It's a present tense. He is, not he will be. And I think there's another word. For. Yeah, the word for. It's an explanatory term. <laughs> and there's a word in Hebrew, we'll get into that, that... Uh, it's, it's an explanation here. Return for, because he will be, yes, he will be, of course, but he is now gracious and compassionate. Here's the point. God is already gracious toward you. As you think about areas you need to turn back to the Lord over. And God is already gracious towards that person who's next to you and that that kid in your home, okay, and your friends and fellow church members who are struggling with life. He already is grace, gracious. gracious. In fact, grace precedes repentance. None of us will turn back to a God that we do not think will receive us. In fact, it's crazy to even contemplate returning to the Lord 
if we believe in our return to the Lord, he's going to destroy us. You'll never go back to a God that you don't think will receive you. And so the mentality that some of our friends are suffering with is a three strikes and you're out mentality. There are people who've sinned in ways in which they think they've out sinned God's grace. And they won't go back to the Lord. And they're ashamed and they have no hope. And so one of our goals is to remind people that there is a God who's already for them. And it's because he is for us that we can return to the Lord. And that's why we make grace central to our ministry to other people. In light of grace, you return. Um, Isn't that what the evangelism message is? For God so loved the world that he gave his son. It's because he loves you, my friend, that he wants you to trust in Jesus Christ and turn to him. That's the fundamental call for us. One other passage I'll just reference here. Uh, I won't develop it. I've actually preached on it before years ago, I think here. I love this passage, Hebrews chapter 4, Christ our high priest. But uh, just notice what Christ provides for us. We will come back to verse 15 when we think about him as one who can uh, sympathize or empathize with our weaknesses. But notice verse 16. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. I love this picture because it's a picture of a throne which conveys power and strength and authority. But it's not for the believer a throne of judgment. It's a throne of grace. And as we go to that Savior, and you notice we do it with confidence, as we go to that Savior with confidence, there are two benefits, two blessings we receive. This is what we need for our hearts, and this is what those we're ministering to need as well. I want to call them forgiving grace and enabling grace. Notice what the text says. We might receive mercy. I think that's going to have a lot to do with forgiveness. It's going to have a lot to do with pardon for our sin, and God being merciful to us as sinners. And benefit blessing number two, grace to help us in our time of need. Now, the time of need for the readers was the temptation to revert back to the way of Moses. The readers of the letter to these Hebrews were in danger of turning back, of giving up on the new covenant, going back to the old way, the old religion. And so the writer here says that Christ can help you to not revert back, but to press on in obedience and discipleship following, following Jesus Christ. So whatever the, the point of felt need within your heart and within the lives of people around you, 
there is a Savior who forgives and who provides strength or power, enablement, sustenance, sometimes just not giving up on the faith is itself um, a display of God's grace. I, I, I know people, and I, I've said this sometimes in counseling situations, when I've heard the amount of suffering or hardship someone faces, I've said things like, I'm so grateful, in fact, I'm amazed that you haven't turned away from the Lord completely. The very fact that you're here today talking to a Christian pastor or talking to me as your friend uh, and being able to talk about the Bible with you, the very fact that you're willing to have this discussion is a display of grace. You know, most people in your situation, apart from the Lord, would have turned away and apostatized and given up the faith. It's a very powerful passage for us. Okay, let me give you a visual model now, all right? So there's our eight workaholics. We talked about the heart. The heart is shepherding our behavior, shaping our behavior, driving our behavior. Now, you have a blank sheet in front of you, and that's by design, so you could draw. And I'm going to try to talk you through a diagram. I'm calling this a comprehensive model for Christian growth. This comes from my mentor, one of my mentors, David Pallison a long-time lecturer, professor at Westminster Seminary, now the executive director of Christian Counseling Educational Foundation, and uh, just a really number, uh, very high mentor in my life. All right, so we start with your blank sheet here. And uh, with the wonders of uh, PowerPoint technology, we'll see how this goes. I'm going to draw one point at a time. So here we're going to start with the sun, and you want to draw that about two-thirds up on your sheet there and a little bit to the left. What is the sun in this illustration? The sun is going to represent heat. That's the metaphor of the sun. This is going to be a desert scene. This is not a day when we want the sun. This is a desert scene. This represents hardship, suffering, problems that come upon me. I'm going to walk you through the diagram and then I'll talk you through the diagram as well. Uh, I'll, I'll give you the categories, which will be on your next page. So right now, if you would draw this and get a feel for it, that would probably be the best way you can learn this diagram. Okay, so uh, the, the sun there represents hardships, suffering. Now, not everything in our world is suffering. Even people who suffer, at least the people you're counseling, are going to have some good things going on in their world as well. So that's going to represent dew drops or the occasional rain that a desert might get. We're not going to develop that too much on these Saturday mornings. I think at one point we'll say something about it. Uh, because mostly when people are looking for help from you, it's because they're suffering some kind of hardship. And we'll go back and talk about the hardships. Now, here's one of the key questions to ask when you are um, ministering to people. How are you handling that hardship? And so that thing there is the branch. It's, it's actually this right here. I'm going to be drawing hearts underneath these things. That is what we're going to call the bad fruit or the uh, sinful fruit, or no fruit, no spiritual fruit. 
These are briars. They're, these are pricklies, okay? These are little sharp things. This is a thorn bush in our metaphor. This diagram comes to us from Jeremiah 17, by the way. Not that the Jeremiah didn't give a diagram, but the diagram is, is um, uh, based upon the two kinds of trees going on in Jeremiah 17. So there's this thorn bush. Now, what the thorn bush will represent for us is sinful behavior, sinful words. And we want to broaden that to include even those sinful emotions that my anxiety, my fears, my despair, my depression, those, those angry thoughts and angry feelings that come. That's what the thorn bush is all about. Our goal is to help people have a fruitful response. So we're going to have a fruit tree there, a fruitful response. That would be godly responses, godly words, godly uh, actions, godly emotions, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, that kind of response, Uh, self-discipline obedience on the behavioral level. So you see the two contrasts here. Now, as I said earlier, we don't want to be mere fruit staplers trying to staple red apples on a thorn bush. So we need to recognize that the behaviors that are sinful are coming from out of the heart. It's out of the heart. Proverbs 4.23, above all else, guard your heart. For out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks, Jesus said. Out of the heart come these things, Matthew 15. Um, Galatians 5, the the flesh, the fleshly part of our our remaining sin as as a hybrid of a a, uh, sinful tree and a godly tree. And then the same thing on the other side. And I'm using the plus and minus just to designate the godly or the ungodly heart. Okay, so let me let me just stop for a moment here. You see what, what we're saying here. Where, for example, does sinful behavior come from? Does it come from the heat? No, it comes from the heart. So why is it in the last couple of weeks you have said something like this? My kids make me so mad. You know what you've just said? Bad fruit, left side, thorn bush, comes from heat. Sassy kids, rebellious kids, disobedient kids, they make me angry. My children are driving me crazy. Wow, driving you crazy? Like... They have somehow captured you, they've handcuffed you, and they've strapped you into the car, and they've jumped in the car, and now they're driving you around and making you crazy. Is that what you just said? Well, no, no, that's not what I, I understand what you meant. Um, Where's it all coming from? It comes from our heart. Why do I overly try to impress you? Why do I kiss up to you? Why do I try to be perfect in your eyes because I'm living for your approval. And that's why I'm going to be embarrassed when you come to our door and not let you into our house because the house is a mess. 
because I have a, a pride about appearance. And I want you to know how sloppy we, we actually are at the Jones house. So we're going to make sure it's really nice appearance. So we have a small group every Thursday night that meets in our home. And uh, believe me, we're, but I've seen growth. Uh, growth in my wife, at least, hopefully in me. We no longer clear the steps of everything. We no longer make sure all the shoes are perfect. Now, there's a kind of love you do to make sure the shoes aren't blocking people's path. That's different. <laughs> but we get them out of the way, and people say, ah, oh, the Joneses have a normal house. Yeah, we do. And that's because of years of, of trying to deal with uh, pride of appearance issues. Uh, when we first got married, you know, here I am, an intern pastor for one year in Iowa. If you have any Iowa stories, tell me later. I'd love to chat with you. I, one year in Iowa, farm town, 750 people in the town, literally. I don't know if you all remember hee-haw, but, you know, you know <laughs> salute. That's what it would say. Boyden, Iowa, northwest corner, Sioux County, way up in the corner. Totally Dutch community. Uh, land there the first day. Some nine-year-old-ish kid comes up to me and says, are you Dutch? And I said, no, I'm not. And then you know what he said, right? If you ain't Dutch, you ain't much. <laughs> this is a nine-year-old kid. I'll tell you, folks, I was ready to. Because <laughs> he made me. Oh, <laughs> uh, yes. Um, but my wife, in her frugality, and I, I appreciate, uh, before she got married, and I'm dating myself, I know, but some of you might remember this. She saved Betty Crocker coupons. And she worked at a place where all the women there, knowing she was going to get married, um, gave her Betty. So she, she, we got a whole china set. Free, you know, Betty, or whatever. She didn't have to pay much for it, whatever it is. Then. And just a nice thing. And I can remember early on, we're thinking, oh, we're entertaining. We've got to get the china out. We've got to get the china out. And God just convicted us all along the way that there are people in Iowa or wherever we were who didn't have china. They, they, they didn't have these niceties. And why are we putting on the show every time? And so that was the beginning of us rethinking what it means to be hospitable. And then you read Francis Schaeffer and any of the Schaeffer's works, and they talk about uh, having people in your home and letting them vomit on your carpet because they're dealing with addiction issues or um, you know, burning your, your curtains because of a cigarette or something like that. And you realize, you know, Lord, what am I doing here? I'm trying to reach my world. Um, Issues of pride within the heart. All right. Finishing the diagram now. How is change going to happen? Hope you left room in the middle for a cross. We call this the three-tree model, and, and that's really to put this third tree, so to speak, as a metaphor. Uh, the tree, the tree of grace, the tree of change, the tree of hope. Symbolizing here God and all his provisions for us. How will change actually occur? God comes to us in Christ. He gives us his word. He gives us the provisions of his spirit. And how is change going to occur? It's as the spirit of God takes the provisions of Christ, his word, his spirit, and moves us progressively from left to right. A Christian, as I said, is a kind of hybrid of these two trees. And as we are progressively moving, God's provisions for us, allowing us to grow 
and change and increasingly put off sin, put on righteousness, bearing good fruit. So we see the repentance here, the the, 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 the faith that God gives us and, and the scriptures and the spirit of God. This I call the stream of grace. This is the work of the spirit, the stream, nourishing our hearts and enabling us to be and do all that God calls us to be and do. Now, let me broaden your diagram. One more big component here, and then I'll fill a few things in on that. This... At the top, it's a full triangle, so I wouldn't let the screen mess us up here. There's a full triangle at the top here, and that's symbolizing God. Um, the triune God, God, the Father, Son, and Spirit. The circle is his sovereignty over everything in our life. Notice he's sovereign over the heat. Hugely important, right, in our ministry. We've got to understand that there's a sovereign God who's allowed that child to get sick, that spouse to die. I got a phone call a month ago, or an email. It's from one of our students. She's mid-20s. Her husband had died the night before, fairly suddenly. She understands without understanding, right? There's a mystery here. You know, you understand, but you don't understand. There's a sovereignty about God. Um, the whole world that we're in, whether it's our hardships or the blessings come from God as well as the hardships, God is the one who's trying to change our hearts. God is the one who sent his son Christ and given us his spirit to bring these changes about. And so when I think of God, I, I want to just credit uh, Jerry Bridges for, for this, yes, hard to see if you're in the back maybe, but sovereign, wise, and good, sovereign, wise, and good. If you've read Jerry Bridges' writings, you know one of his books is um, Trusting God Even When Life Hurts, and he develops the, the themes of God being sovereign, God being um, um, good, God being wise, wise and good. This is how growth and change will happen for us. Now, let me say something about counseling. If you can see this little, you can't see it very well here. There's actually a line here, and maybe you see it here. This is kind of also the flow of the way we minister to people. Here's what I mean. You can really start here. You can make a big, a big line of a circle that goes like this. Because often we meet our friend at the point of their suffering. How are things going for you? Oh, man, I've had a hard week and something about the job or the kids or my back pain or I've got to go to the doctor. There's, there's a lump. I've got to go to the doctor. There's something about their circumstance, their situation. And then as you listen, you enter their world, you show your care, and maybe a turning point is, so how are you handling that? Well, I'm not handling it too well. My husband's been out of town for a job, and I've been snapping at the kids. Um, I'm not handling it well. 
and then we're, and I can't take the time right now, but the rest of the class will be all about the, the rest of the training will be about this. Okay, what is it at that point that's controlling that person? And where do they need to get a fresh dose of God's presence and God's wisdom and his forgiveness and his enabling grace and uh, empowering grace and all that? And how does the heart need to be shaped differently and respond differently to the same circumstance, the same issue? The heat governs both of these. The heat is over both of these, good or bad fruit. Uh, let's do this. Let's take a break right now. Take a break right now. And then uh, I'll, I'll say a few more things about the model when we come back. And then I will uh, move into the next section for us today. So 10 minutes. Is that fair?